your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Stephen Horowitz. Steve is the Charles A. Dana Professor of Economics at St. Lawrence University and the author of a forthcoming paper, Inequality, Mobility, and Being Poor in America. Steve, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Oh, thanks to, thanks to, for having me. So your paper challenges what you call the standard narrative about U.S. income inequality. Can you kind of summarize that narrative and give us an indication of the sorts of evidence that's offered for it? Well, I think the standard narrative is the shortest version of it. The rich are getting rich and the poor are getting poorer. Uh, you know, a somewhat more sophisticated version is some notion that inequality, however measured, has increased. And, and again, there is some evidence for it. It depends over what period you're looking. But certainly if you're looking over you know, a couple decades, the best evidence is that, say, the top 20% or 1% or pretty much any measure you use of income earners gets a larger share of total income today than they did, say, in the 1970s or 1960s. And those at the bottom, the lowest 20%, get a somewhat smaller share of total income than they received 30, 40 years ago. And normally that's the best evidence, and people look at it over different time frames and sort of say, see, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, uh, and they leave it at that. And, and the implication of that often is that or at least it's not clear what they mean, that whether they really mean that people who are, you know, who were poor in the past, that the same people who were poor in the past are poorer today, and the same people who were rich in the past are richer today, or whether they mean something else. Um, but that's usually the best evidence that people bring to the table, are those sort of the, the spreading of the, or the distribution among those quintiles. Yeah, and so this, in effect, it's kind of an argument the, about what's been happening, but there's kind of implicit policy implications, at least as most yep. people understand it. Yeah, and I think for many, right, if if they believe that inequality is increasing, it becomes an argument for all kinds of things. Obviously, progressive taxation, the success of the Piketty book, despite its you know being riddled with flaws, I think rests on the fact that that the same people who are prone to, to want to like that book like think more progressive taxation is a good idea, but it also can support, you know, uh, uh, things like limits on profits or limits on CEO compensation or forcing firms to have, you know, the ratio between the average worker's employee and the CEO's compensation. So there's all kinds of policies that might flow out if you think inequality is increasing. You might also be arguing for, you know, more spending on education or, or other kinds of things that, that would, uh, you know, are thought anyway to, to help those at the at the bottom of the income ladder, uh, you know, pull themselves up. So, so yeah, there's all kinds of policy implications if if you really believe inequality in that sense is growing. Now, you dispute this narrative, and we're going to go into that. But I wonder, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to disagree with it? Oh uh, well, um, I think it's a it's a conjunction of a number of things that I've been reading. I mean, I, I've sort of turned myself in the last. 15 years, 20 years into uh, an economic historian. I'm really fascinated by economic history, particularly American economic history. Uh, and uh, some of that's related to a book project of mine on, on 
classical liberalism in the family, where I had to go back and kind of look at these, you know, the, the sort of history of the family and history of childhood. And when you, the more you read, right, you realize that life's never been better than it is today you know, along most material and other dimensions. And so that got me thinking about a lot of these sort of, this the sort of belief that somehow this kind of pessimist view that things are getting worse and worse and worse in general. And one of the first books I read was uh, Cox and Alms' book, Richard Allman, uh, I'm blanking on the other Cox's name, but um, called Myths of Rich and Poor. Okay, and that's a book that came out in 1999. Uh, it was basic books, and and they, with data they had up to the late 90s, made the very powerful case that in fact it wasn't true, right? That 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 the that the, the poor were doing better, middle class was doing better, and and uh, life for pretty much everyone was better than it had been. And that was one of the first things I recall reading. But since then, then then there's been this whole debate, and one of the things they did in that book was to talk about the mobility question: how quickly, how easily do people move up and down the income? different income quintiles, and so I started reading some of that stuff. And then there's been this work by my friends Don Boudreau and, and Mark Perry that have tried to measure the real, uh, and based on Cox and Alm, measure the real amount of labor time people spend, how many hours of work at the average wage does it take to buy certain goods. And when you start looking at that, you realize that the price of everything has dropped dramatically in the last 40 years, and that, that, that you know poor American families today have access to things that the middle class didn't dream of years ago. So, you know, kind of all these things came together. And one of my things about this particular paper for me is it was the, finally an opportunity to bring all this stuff and put it all in one place, the stuff I've been doing, some things that Don had done and Mark had done, and sort of pull it all together in one place. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's one of the things I really liked about it is um, there were some points that were new to me, but much of it was just putting together stuff that had been mostly sitting around in blog posts and in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some PDF hidden on the web. So um, yep. let's let's start with a fundamental distinction you draw at the beginning of your paper um, between income distribution and living standards. What is that distinction? Why is it important? And then how does it get blurred in most discussions of inequality? Well, I think, I mean, the question is, what are we concerned about, right? Are we concerned about inequality per se, or are we really concerned about the well-being of the least well-off, right? Because we can imagine a world in which inequality grows, but as it grows, the least well-off, the poor, do keep doing better and better. It's just that the rich are doing even more better. You know, and, and, and is that a terrible world to be in when the, when the poor live well, better, right? But the, but, you know, but the gap between they and the rich has expanded versus a world where everyone's more equal but more impoverished, right? I mean, we, you know, that world, the world of, of equal but, but poor, <laughs> hardly seems desirable compared to the world of more, of more unequal, more inequal, uh, but where the, at least the poor certainly do better off. And so one of the things that I try to stress in this paper is we can't let those two things get confused. We want to make sure that we understand uh, you know the the difference between in, uh, concern about inequality and the concern about poverty, uh, and that makes us ask the question: How easy is it for people to get out of poverty? And do the typical you know data statistics on inequality mask? Do they obscure some of those questions? Yeah, and I think it's important to make that distinction. I think it's often deliberately blurred because one thing that happens. I mean, you you say, and I think this is right. Who you know? Who would prefer a world where people were poor but more equal? And yet, some of the who you might call inequality alarmists will defend that position when pushed. I was just reading the Spirit Level, which is a very famous work by um, along these lines, and they make exactly that sort of case. And I think it's is very revealing. 
And I don't yep. think most Americans buy that case. And so it's it's important that we make sure right. that, you know, you can't confuse those two issues. So let's then go into the question of uh, mobility. How do you how do you think about the issue of mobility generally and what's your assessment of how mobility has been over the past few decades? There's two kinds of mobility. There's what, what we call in, intra-generational mobility, which is, so I, I get out, you know, I, I get out of college, I get a job, how easy it is for me, how easy is it for me or my household to sort of move up through through the income ladder, okay? Uh, then there's, you know, across generational, cross-generational mobility, where the question is, given my wealth, how likely is it that my kids will live in this, be in the same quintile or higher than, than I did, right? So, so one question is, do households move up with, you know, do the same household move up over time? The second question is, do the successive generations move up? And, and the evidence is there's reasonably substantial mobility along most dimensions. Uh, along the first dimension, we know that the, the, the majority of households who are poor in one year uh, are no longer poor after five, six, seven years, right? That people get out of poverty, they move up. There's been a great deal of debate about those figures in the Cox and Allen book. They presented some numbers which I think in retrospect have been shown to be overly optimistic. They were stunning that you know, the 95% of households get out of poverty over a 15-year period. The later data or you know, sort of criticisms of their methodology suggests it's not that high. But even, even still, at least up until the financial crisis, we could see, you know, again, more than half of families who were in poverty in one year out within five, six, seven years, uh, and, and, and mobility from the sort of lower middle and middle class up is, is comparable. So, so people do move around, and people from the top go down, too. Let's not forget that, right? So there is mobility. I, think, I do think there's some evidence that mobility has, has declined a little bit in, over the last, say, decade or two, as opposed to, say, 30 or 40 years. But one reason for that might be, it kind of is a statistical story. I hope I can do this, you know, sort of uh, without a visual in front of me, but... Um, if you imagine that what happens when economies grow is that, that if we divide the richer economy into fifths, into these quintiles of income, each of those is bigger than they were, say, five or ten years ago when the economy was, was somewhat poorer, right? So it's like expanding an accordion, right? And so it becomes harder to leap out of any given quintile, right? Because the quintile is bigger. You've got to jump higher to get out. So there's probably a bunch of households who got richer in the last ten years, but who didn't leave a quintile because the quintiles got bigger, right? It got harder to leave a quintile. And the quintiles are arbitrary in some sense. What we care about is, did they move up, right? So, <clears throat> so using the quintiles is a convenient way, but it also can mask some mobility, too. Yeah, we, interviewed, again, uh, we interviewed Max Borders on the show from yeah. the Freeman, and the analogy he gave was uh, you set up you know, two different uh, tape measures on a wall, you know, one yeah. uh, low, one stretching to the ceiling, and then have a basketball player jump on the bigger, you know, side, and then have uh, yeah. me jump on the lower side, and it, it looks like oh, I've reached the top quintile of the measuring stick, and he only reached the second quintile, and yet you right. know, the the the, right. com- the compression of right. it is exactly. what's really at issue. Exactly. No. And so international yeah, comparisons, analogy. international comparisons, then become very very tricky uh, if yep. you're comparing, say, mobility in Sweden versus mobility yep. in the U.S. Yeah, no, and uh, yeah, again, and I don't even broach that one in the paper because that gets, I mean, that's more complicated data and questions. But yeah, so I think, I mean, that's part of it. We we know there's mobility, just how much, there's the good debate, and whether the lower mobility numbers are are missing some what we really care about, right? Because of because of the 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 
spreading out of the quintiles. So, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, and, the, and I think the takeaway, what I get from your paper is not that we have a definitive understanding of what's going on, but that the people who make definitive claims that basically we yep. live in a caste society, that yep. is completely baseless. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, we can, we, we, not, we, we haven't proven lockdown sort of the case I might hope is true. But I think we've got really strong evidence that the sort of null hypothesis, right, that we're in this, like you said, we're in a caste system, we're locked into place, uh, that doesn't seem to be valid. There's enough evidence, I think, to say that's not true. Just how mobile and how, you know, how, how good things are is, it remains a matter of some discussion. So what's been happening then if we look at the middle class? Now, there's all sorts of claims, uh, and you take on a number of them in your paper, whether it's the middle class is disappearing, the middle class is stagnating. Um, Give me give me a sense of what's been happening to living standards for the middle class. Well, well, again, I think there's a couple things people point to here as being sort of the evidence on the other side. One is is the fact that the the percentage of households in the middle class has shrunk, and it has, uh, and that median household income has stagnated. In fact, gone down in the last few years. Is another one. So that see, there's our there's our stagnating or declining middle class. But each of those arguments has some problems with it. On the middle class, it's true the middle class is shrinking, but there's some pretty good evidence that it's shrinking because middle class families are moving up so quickly, right? Uh, and that and that poor families are moving up too, uh, but they're not sort of filling in the middle class faster than the middle class is leaving. So we see we see the middle class in terms of a percentage of total households shrinking, but it's because there's a much higher percentage of households above the middle class, say above $100,000 a year in household income. Uh, than there used to be. And that's, again, all these income numbers, of course, are adjusted for inflation. So one reason it looks like the middle class is, middle class is shrinking, but because more people are doing better if we, if we keep it to, you know, if we measure that by a constant standard. Well, and that even uh, understates the, it, because by the, by the numbers I've seen, the number of people in middle class households is larger than the number of people, that's, the yes. household size at the bottom end. Yes, and that's true of the upper class too. I mean, one of the problems with with those, uh, you know, the mobility numbers is that uh, the the rich households that are getting richer have more people in it. So if you ask the question, if you ask the question this way, how many people live in rich households and in middle class households and in poor households? Then you get a much more skewed distribution, rather than you know equal quintiles, right? When you divide by households, you don't pay attention to size, but the majority of Americans live. You know, a significant majority of Americans live in middle class or higher households because there's just more people. Poor households tend to be single people or sometimes single moms with a kid or two. You know, the middle class and higher households tend to have have more have be married couples with children of some number of children. So yeah, I think that's an important point too. Uh, and again, skews, skews all of these when you start to break it down. When you ask the question, how many people live in households in each quintile, you get a different story. Um, but to go back to the median household income real quick, uh, you know. Median simply means half or above, half or below. Uh, it doesn't tell us anything about what happens over time to specific households. And one of the things to remember with all of this data is the composition of households changes every year. Some, some households, you know, people die, people retire. Other households join that distribution as people enter the labor force or immigrants come in. And the reality is that new entrants to, the, to that distribution enter at the bottom. They come in poor. And so as they come in poor, that pulls the median down. And it's possible that, you know, unlikely, but possible that every other household in the distribution could have been better off from year one to year two, but enough households came in at the bottom to keep the median constant, right? So the, me the constant median doesn't tell us anything about how individual households 
uh, are doing are doing as individuals or even on average. It just tells us that half the households in one year were more than that and less, and the other half in the other year half were more and less. So, so uh, that's a tricky one too. I have a little example with test questions that I use that tries to get that point across. I think gets in the paper as well. Uh, one, this is a smaller point, but I really liked it. You mentioned a thought experiment that um, Don Boudreau proposed. Yes. Uh, to really press us to think about, do we really buy into the story of stagnation? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, essentially, the, the question is, would you rather live at today's median income in, say, 1967 or 1967's median income today, right? And, and the point of the thought experiment is, if you think about what life was like, say, in 1967 or 1970, whatever, I mean, I was old enough to, I'm old enough to remember the 70s, right? Think about all the things that we didn't have, and you can think about how expensive so many things were, right? We didn't have, I mean, I'd take beta blockers for blood pressure, right? I'd be in big trouble in the 1970s, and now I have this wonderful no-side-effect medicine that cost me, you know, very little, right? Um, so, and, you know, cell phones, all the technology we can think of, but, but medicines and everything, and yet, you know, we, I think we'd rather live today when, when we get people live longer, better, cooler lives, uh, even though the median income today might be, you know, even at 1967's median income today, that would not be a lot of money. But people who make, you know, 35000 a year today still own cell phones. They still have automobiles. They still have houses with appliances in them. Right? If you went back in time, even with more money, you go back in time, there's things you couldn't even buy, right, that, that at any price because they didn't exist. So part of the if, if if part of the stagnation point is or the life's getting worse point is that life today for a median you know for median house a household with median income has gotten worse then you ought to be willing to take that bargain right and go back to 1967 at today's median income but most people wouldn't take it um, and rightly so yeah so that actually uh, starts getting us towards what I thought is some of the most interesting stuff in the paper and that's looking at consumption you mentioned a little bit yeah. the research you know mark and and don have uh talked about can you expand a little bit about what 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 we mean when we say let's look at consumption and then yeah. highlight some of the findings you reach there yeah well the what what we're trying to there's sort of the two background pieces right are one we can talk all day about income right and about what about you know the income people are, but what ultimately matters is well, what you care about in terms of income is what can people buy, right? What what are they able to buy with that income? Uh, and and because what we what we're able to buy, right? What's in our households is what ultimately matters. So one of the ways that we can try to measure that is we can say what was the average wage in a particular year, and how many hours would a person have to work at that wage to purchase whatever goods we're talking about, at the price that you would have seen then. So you can look at things like Sears catalogs and find the prices of, of appliances and, and so forth. Um, and so what we do is we can kind of come forward in time and say, okay, at today's average wage, how many hours would people have to work? So just as one example, take something you know uh, as basic as, as uh, uh, sort of typical household appli appliance, let's say like a dishwasher, okay? In 1959, you could buy a dishwasher from the Sears catalog for $190. But at the average... Uh, private sector wage of two dollars and nine cents. That was about ninety-one hours of work. By 1973, at the average wage, that dishwasher, which cost three hundred ten dollars, was down to seventy-eight and a half hours. Today, at least 2013, that same dishwasher you can buy for four hundred bucks, but that's only twenty hours of work at the average wage of nineteen dollars. So when we ask this, when we look at this question about time, right? We see, we can really see the benefits that. 
that not just working class folks, but even poor folks have by being able to buy these basic appliances much more cheap. Uh, Mark Perry has a has a compilation of these where basically if you compare 59, 1973, and 2013 it, to get the same appliances. In 2013, the sticker price of those appliances would be over $3,000, which is almost twice what it was in 1959. But the time cost is less than a quarter, about 20% of what it was back then. So, so again, that's uh, you know that's stunning, right? And and um, and that that time is the ultimate resource for human beings. We only have so much of it, and the less time we have to work to buy things, the more the more time we have to work to buy the other kinds of things that we do. You know, so that's how we how everyone can afford the electronics and the healthcare and all the other stuff. Uh, so uh, I want to push back in two ways. Um, mm-hmm. One is you'll you'll get the kind of response that says okay living standards have gone up but only because we've had to work a lot harder more households have two working parents um people are having to work longer and take you know fewer vacations in order to keep their heads above water so we're not really seeing economic progress we're seeing people who are making trade-offs uh that we are effectively stagnating even if there have been these increases well, there's a number of responses to that. I think the first one is why why is that not progress, right? I mean, if people are choosing to work more hours, it's not it's not like, right? I mean, if this data is true, it's not like they have to work more hours to get the basics. In fact, they don't. They we could be taking leisure time and still living better. But people are choosing to work more. I mean, you know, some critics might say, well, you know, corporate power is making them work more. But 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 even if it's true that people are working more, Great, they're getting. I mean, they find that there there's so many great things they can buy. They want to keep working. That's that's progress. I mean, it's, it's assuming it's the choice people are making. But I actually don't think people are working more. Uh, Cox and Alms data, which again ended in the late 90s, and as far as I know, hasn't changed substantially since then, was pretty clear that if you add up, you know, all the vacation days the average worker has, and all the and sort of the number of hours per day that people work, in fact, over the 20th century. Hours worked continued to decline. Now it hasn't, you know, the decline slowed as we got later into the century. But more interestingly, if you now put into that longer lifespans and later start work dates and early retirement dates, if you look at the number of leisure hours people have over their lifetime, it's gone up immensely, right? So part of what we're working for is not just to, you know, keep ourselves alive and happy today, but to create that nest egg, right, that we'll have when we retire, so we can live well in retirement too. So it seems to me that 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 if we're working fewer hours over the course of our lifetime and, and living longer lives uh, and being able to join more stuff, that's, you know, that's a good thing. The other one I want to address in there is the two working, you know, the working couples thing. Because sometimes that story goes, okay, you're, maybe, maybe this is all true, Horowitz, but uh, clearly you know, things got worse for households because women ha- had to work to make sure households could make ends meet. All right. Two things about that. One, it's demeaning to women in the sense that, in fact, what we know from the data, the reason that most women are working is because they have better education and the demand for labor has been there. And in fact, w- women who uh, women who work are more likely to be married to wealthy men than poor men. Right. So who, the people, the couples who are working are the high earner couples. Right? If, if the story were true, that women had to work to make up for men's lower wages, we ought to see higher rates of dual income among families where the male's income is lower. But we see just the opposite. So that story doesn't get very far, I don't think. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, that that and, I haven't heard. And, yeah, and as if, by the way, as if women working were somehow 
like a problem, right? A sign of that we're not progressing. Seems to me it's just the opposite. Great, well, you know, that's a good thing, right? That we're, we've grown enough that we we have these jobs that we now you know can to, can can hire women for and, and give them some you know give women more independence than they've had in the past. That seems to me a good thing, not a, not a not a bad thing. Now the other um, objection you deal with this uh, in the paper, I think, uh, very well. And that's um, so. I won't ask you to go into too much detail here. But the other thing they'll say is, look, the most important prices that we pay, if we're talking about consumption, the you know education, housing, healthcare, those have skyrocketed. So you can point to a dishwasher all you'd like, Horitz, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm spending all my money to put a roof over my head and send my kid to school, and then yep. I have a heart attack from all that hard work, and I can't pay for that because <laughs> of healthcare. Right. Uh, okay, so here's here's the short I'll, the short response, and again, folks can check the paper for the longer version. But the short response is is really twofold. One, all three of those things, though education might be a little trickier. Certainly, healthcare and housing, the quality of what we purchase has gone up significantly. Houses are bigger, they are safer, they have more stuff in them, um, they're more fuel efficient. I mean, all, you know, all these sorts of things. And healthcare. I mean, some of the examples I mentioned before, right? We have all of these things available. We save lives from all that hard work, but I'm way more likely to survive it and live a long life today than I was, you know, however many years ago. So that's one response, is that quality is better. But I think the other response is these three industries are industries in which government plays an enormous role, and arguably among the biggest roles it plays anywhere. And, and there's a plausible argument to be made that the reason, one important reason, that these things have got more expensive beyond what we would expect in terms of the increase in quality uh, is that government policies have made it so. I mean, we've had the housing boom and bust, and that was driven by government. We know that governments, you know, when providing students with, with more and more and cheaper and cheaper student loans contributes to the rising cost of tuition, as does other government mandates on schools that make them hire more people. Uh, and in the case of health care, right, absolutely no doubt, Medicare, Medicaid, and this crazy worst-of-all-world system we have, and it's only going to get worse with, with the Affordable Care Act, uh, has driven up the cost of health care unnecessarily, too. So, so these are areas that, that I mean, the, the critics are right in one sense. These have gotten more expensive. Uh, but even within them, we think about medical care, LASIK eye surgery is not interfered with with government by much at all, and that's come enormously down in price in a very competitive market. So what we need uh, is to take to look at the cases where we haven't got, have had real competition and real markets in these things and, and imitate them better across, across all the housing and health care and education markets. I'm curious, as a defender of free markets, what do you think the best – uh, or strongest argument, or the toughest to answer in the inequality debate is for you. Oh, that's a good. That's. A, I, I was thinking earlier you were going to ask me this question at another point. Um, I, I actually think it's this this last thing that we've been talking about because I do think it's true. Uh, it, it is true that people are spending more on, on on housing. It is true that people may be spending more on healthcare and certainly more on education. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's hard to parse the argument that the fault of that is because those have that heavy intervention without, you know, the, the, the critics are going to say, say, you know, well, that's sort of begging the question in, in, in some kinds of ways, right? Uh, or how do you know that for sure? How do you know it just isn't, you know, it's convenient for you that you say market forces and the ones that are cheaper, right? But government are the ones that are more expensive. And I think that's a, that kind of objection needs to be dealt with very carefully and, and seriously by people taking my position. So really trying to make the case 
that the, that the excessive level of government in those industries is the reason that they're so that they're that they are different from from the others. And, I, and another response I should point out too, right, is you know people sometimes say, oh well, Horowitz, you're just talking about all the toys that are cheaper. Well, you know what? <laughs> no, <laughs> refrigerators keep medicine cold, right? That they're cheaper than they used to be. That's good. Freezers allow poor people to store food and buy cheap. That's good. Clothes dryers and and dishwashers make things cleaner and healthier. So these aren't, you know, just these aren't just trivial kinds of things. And computers, air conditioners save lives, right? Cell phones get you jobs. So again, I, I, these aren't just toys. These have materially improved the lives of poor and working Americans. Oh yeah, I think uh, I really dislike that trivialization of some of these achievements. I mean, take yep. a take a different yep. one, which doesn't even wouldn't, wouldn't even show up in prices, and that's something like we're, you know we're having a conversation over Skype, Skype which yep. is not only informative to people, but you know I travel a lot, and the ability to see your family when you're you yep. know anywhere oh, in the world, yep. I, yep. I, th- I think to you know kind of denigrate those achievements or dismiss them is really, really wrongheaded, in part as an act of justice to the people who created them, but in part because it it, it's, it highlights a certain materialism on the people who criticize the free market side for being materialistic. It's If this doesn't show up in our wage or GDP numbers, then it's not real progress. And our point is that, yeah. no, life is not about a GDP number or a aggregate statistic number. It's about can you live a happy, flourishing life and there's many, many ways in which we can do that now that we couldn't 40 years ago. I think that's absolutely right. And just as one sort of mother version of that, right? You know, I think a lot about long distance romantic relationships today versus years ago, right? You know, you can imagine way back, you had to send a letter and three weeks later you got it, right? And now you can, you can literally hold your loved one's face in your hands and say goodnight to them on Skype, right? Every night in a way. And, and that's, you know, how much does that improve human life beyond any measure of, like you say, of any sort of GDP or, or wage or anything else? That's an enormous increase in the quality of human life right there. You know. So uh, two quick questions then before we end. Um, you mentioned in your paper briefly, but I thought it was very interesting, the positive economic role of inequality. And you, you talk about uh, a quote yeah, from Hayek. Yeah. Uh, yeah. C- can you comment on that briefly? Because I think it's something people never think about. Yeah. Well, and the, the argument Hayek makes, and some others have made it too, basically, is that you need rich people to try things out, right? They are the ones who get experimented on. They're the first ones to buy the flat screen TVs. And they kind of, first of all, you find out whether it's worth doing or not, right? Is Google Glass a good idea, right? And they cover the fixed cost. They pay the high price, right? Because they want to have new shiny toys, right? And so they're willing to cough up the money to do that. And that makes it possible to eventually provide those things to the masses. Almost all the things we're talking about today, the home appliances and everything else, were first the, the toys of the rich. It's only after the rich buy them and you know, confirm that they're a good thing to do uh, that they become, uh, you know, we can produce them at, at, for the masses. So, so again, you need the argument is is that you know you, it's, inequality has this positive role to play in, in spreading wealth downward from the rich. What? Let's end on this. Uh, what's your advice to you know a, a, somebody who wants to support free markets and is going to wade into the inequality debate without becoming you know an, a, an expert in all these numbers? What would be your advice? in trying to stand up for free markets in the wake of the uh, inequality narrative? I think just ask people to think seriously 
about how poor people live in the United States today versus years ago. I'll tell you one little, and this is, I mean, so that to me is the key. You look around, poor households have satellite dishes. That's, to me, that's it, right? But here's a little anecdote that, that I think if your listeners will find particularly good. Um, the story goes that uh, the film version of The Grapes of Wrath, right, which, you know, was very popular, uh, that the Russians, the Soviets in the 40s wanted to use this as anti-capitalist propaganda, right? So, so they would, you know, because it was this story of these, you know, poor Americans who get in their car and grab the old car and drive west and all this, right? And, and, you know, it's a terrible, horrible story. And so they showed the film a few times trying to, gen, you know, make it anti-capitalist propaganda. But there was only one problem, right? The, 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 the Russians, the Soviet citizens would watch it and they kind of go, wait, 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 poor Americans have cars, right? So, you know, that, that's, there it is, right? That's, that's, if you, do that across time and you say realize what it means to be poor in america today it just doesn't seem possible that the inequality nerve that the poor are getting poor and somehow life for poor people is worse than it was x number of years ago just seems implausible to me and i think without knowing the numbers i think that's something that you can work with kind of just from anecdotes and from observation and say you know that seems true and if so what exactly is the inequality narrative that you're that you're telling my guest today has been Stephen Horowitz. Steve, thanks for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Absolutely my pleasure. So I think one really important takeaway from this discussion was the need to distinguish between real legitimate problems and inequality. As Steve talked about, whether you're speaking of poverty or education or housing, there can be real problems, there are real challenges, real things that one has to wrestle with. But inequality, although it's often confused with that, in the end, what it really refers to is just the sheer disparity of incomes that, uh, or any other sort of outcome that tells us nothing by itself about the real actual well-being of individuals. And so putting things in terms of inequality that are not sheer disparity, sheer differences between people, it's not clarifying, it's confusing. I mean, you can imagine somebody who came out and, you know, reported in the New York Times uh, back in 2009, Bernie Madoff has been accused of creating inequality through his uh, financial activities. That would tell you nothing. You say, well, well, how did he create inequality? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it productive? Did he just get richer than his clients or did they get poor? Talking about a genuine problem in terms of inequality it adds nothing, and it makes us harder to get at the actual well-being of individuals, which is what we should care about. And so I think any of the alleged problems that are about sheer disparities are not legitimate problems. And the people who think that they are, the people who think that there is an issue if the poor are getting richer and the rich are getting richer, but the rich are getting rich faster, the onus on them is to say that openly and then to try to defend it not to hide behind the implication left in the listener's mind that rising inequality means necessarily that somebody's actual well-being is being disturbed. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time.
Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.